Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Call You Dirty Corner. It is I, your host, Owen McIntyre, and with me, as always, is Mr. Riley Jimison. Riley, you're here, right? Oh, I am here. I am here and ready to rock. So, all right. So now, those of you who have not tuned into Calibre Corner before, it is a uh, little bit of an uh, in-depth look of a certain species under the Calibre umbrella. It is a vast uh, genera of um, snake species, so we kind of have a lot to go with. So this week, we are looking into which snake, Riley? So this species is a, is a, a fond individual of ours. We are both uh, keepers of the species and intrigued by them. It is the, the Madagascar giant hognose snakes. Cool. So, this, so that yeah. one is, uh, can you pronounce that one? Owen? I think we, you, th- that one might be familiar enough. I think you can nail that one, huh? Madagascarists. Might, yeah, whatever. Though. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Le- Leoheterodon madagascariensis. There we go. So this has been a species that has definitely kind of caught my eye and yours. Like you said, we're both keepers of this species. And it's something that I, I want to say it's been around for a little bit, but I don't see, I don't think I saw often in herpticulture when I was coming up. And that yeah. might have been, that might have been just because I wasn't paying attention. Um, or it might have been that they just weren't readily imported. And I know that mm-hmm. in certain points, Madagascar. Uh, the island and the government would not export to the United States. So that might have been part of it as well. But mm-hmm. they're such a cool species. And they seem like they're more like a false water cobra than they are a hognose. Like you will not yeah. mustache on these things. They will not tolerate yeah. them. Yeah, especially if we're comparing them with the North American groups of hognose. They're nothing like those behaviorally, structurally, anatomically. They're just... Yeah, I think I think you nailed it when you're talking about false water cobras being a very similar behaving and, and acting and looking sort of species mm-hmm. uh, in many ways. So let's start with the uh, what are the common names for these guys? So you'll you'll hear you know kind of a couple different names thrown around, and it's good to understand that there are three species of Madagascar hog nose out there there's speckles and there's golds um those are the common names for the other ones what we are focusing on today are the the malagasy so you'll hear them referred to as malagasy hog nose snakes malagasy giant hog nose or just malagasy snakes um there's a lot of interchangeable things that's the the challenge with common names so you'll hear those interchangeably used but most people refer to them as madagascar giant hog nose snakes nice so uh we're looking at what as far as the discovery point or period? So everything that I can find on iNaturalist kind of puts the earliest description of these snakes in the mid 1800s, around 1854. And and you'll hear this a lot in a lot of snake discovery and description and nomenclature, the names Dumeril, Bibron, and Dumeril. Um, Those are the last names credited with at least the, the nomenclature designation Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not finding too much information, if any, of them prior to that date. So uh, they are credited with um, sort of the first name and publication of the species in written in written herpticulture, and and it was originally just Heterodon Madagascariensis, and then over the years they've changed genus to something that I'm not even sure is used anymore, mm-hmm. and and I'm gonna try it here. It's N Anomalodon Madagascariensis, okay. and then there were a couple papers that um, validated that, and then it looks like it went to 
Leo Heterodon without an E in it, and then they changed that and then went back to Leo Heterodon and then Leo Heterodon. And so it, it seems like it's been sort of uh rather, yeah. Yeah, with just very subtle um designations in the genus variety, but they kept it Madagascariensis the whole time. Um so yeah, I mean, as far as as far as herpetoculture is concerned, they've been Leo Heterodon Madagascariensis as long as we've been able to get them into the hobby. Okay. Uh, All right. So, what are we looking as far as? So, we know we said that they're different than a lot of the North American hognose species. Mm -hmm. Kind of like what? What's the body mate workup? What are like? What are we looking at here? So, if anybody's familiar with the North American varieties, we all know they're kind of short, uh, stocky little things, not very long. They have keeled scales, and some of the North American varieties have a very pronounced. Nose wedge yeah, like yeah it's, it's really like, high up yeah yeah it's really out there um so the first things that you notice when looking at madagascar giants is one that they're huge they're just mm. much bigger right they're long they can reach you know reported lengths of five to six feet um you know none of my adults are over four and a half feet roughly but then again i don't pull out a tape measure right um, so i could be wrong and i and i have seen some big uh some big individuals out there the next thing you notice is that they do not have keeled scales. Um, they have very glossy, smooth-looking scales, very absent of any sort of ridge down the middle. And then their noses are nowhere near as like flat, shovel, spade-looking. Now, they definitely have that, that contour of the bottom jaw that goes seamlessly up to a, an upturned wedge shape. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't come up like the spoiler on a, a sports car or anything. You right. know what I mean? Like it's it's there, but it is not as pronounced as some of the North American varieties. So then the last thing that you notice is how their coloration is uh, arranged. Whereas the North American varieties, it's it's one sort of pattern and, and color arrangement throughout the entire body. Mm -hmm. Whereas mad hogs tend to be broken up into into thirds, where the first and last third are very similar in color, it tends to be all black, fading down into a cream uh, white belly. But the midsection in varying degrees will have uh, almost like a checkered stripe down the dorsum that is bordered with a lot of gold and sort of canary orange looking colors. Mm -hmm. So you almost get this trifecta of, of color and pattern to these animals. And it can vary from individual to individual. And then other than that, you'll get some variation with some red coloration in the white scales on the throat. You'll get a lot of what looks like this stonewashed yellow or gray that can come over the top of the head on some of them. Um, and then you can get some that are very melanistic. I've worked with an individual years ago that was all black with no pattern uh, and just some partially white ventral scales. So an absolutely beautiful animal. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's probably rare, I would think, considering I've never seen another one like her. So, yeah, that's kind of the, the general gist of, of how they look. If anybody hasn't seen them, you know, you should be able to sort of visualize that look. But they're they're big and they're impressive. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah, let's. Venom potency. Yeah. We're talking yeah. about what, like, American hognose westerns, everybody knows that they're rear-fanged venomous, but that it is um, not harmful to humans. Um, first off, let, let's dispel the rumor that a rear fang venomous snake must chew you back to the to to the fangs. That yeah, you know, that's not true. They have big mouths, so they open their mouth wide, mm -hmm. um, and that's how they bite you. So, mm -hmm. as far as the venom potency on these guys, what are we looking at? 
So there isn't a lot of documentation. However, that being said, there is at least one instance documented that I bookmarked a few years ago. And I read every so often just to remind myself of this because we can get very complacent with mm -hmm. certain individuals that can be very calm. My captive born, baby, captive born and bred baby is very calm. Um, yeah. But my adults are not. They're wild caught. They're very high stress and they will actively throw defensive behaviors at me. So we we see in this article an individual who studies these animals quite frequently out there and has attained a few bites over over the years from some cantankerous adults without any reaction but this one in particular he seems to have been restraining the animal for whatever measurements and it happened to slip his grasp a little bit and do some side bites on his thumb and hit him three times over the course of a 90 second window Mm -hmm. And for four days, his hand swelled up as you would expect when you see an envenomation. It wasn't wasn't really blistering. It wasn't like discolored or anything. But the documentation reports the the victim feeling uh, a lot of tension, lack of mobility, and some discomfort and pain going all the way up into the lymph nodes in his armpits. Um, so he had some swelling, but it you know he was still conscious he was still able to sleep and eat and do everything normally it was just pretty uncomfortable and then after four days the visible symptoms went away but he had five more days of discernible discomfort and pain in the hand and in the arm and in the thumb and and that just goes to show you a quick little pop one two three times is all it takes it it the animal did not latch on and hold and chew according to this documentation. But the other little asterisk to it that they mentioned, which is always good to keep in mind is one, everybody's biology reacts differently to these yeah. things. And two, if you're exposed to this a lot, it is possible to develop a hypersensitivity. So it was discussed that this isn't necessarily a normal reaction. It could be, but it could also be as a result of his exposure to these animals during his years of field work and studying. So it's just something to keep in mind, but these, these snakes are hot. They're hot. We, we look at rear fang snakes as kind of this gray area where we seem to think we can just get away with um, treating them like care. anything else. And I am guilty of this as anybody else. Um, but the more we read it and the more we see instances of people having severe reactions to things just as simple as a Western hognose bite, it's definitely interesting and something to think about. And in, you know, in, in zoos, rear fanged venomous snakes are often regarded as, and treated as full venomous at the very least for insurance and liability purposes, just to make sure there are no accidents. And so I think, I think, as you said, the elephant in the room is, is a great way to describe it because I don't think as a hobby, we want to acknowledge that we've been kind of lax with, things like boiga and leohedrodon to be because here's the thing is that even if you are lax with boiga and heterodon the, the it, and you get bit and you have a reaction do you really want to be known as the guy who died from a madagascar hognose bite yeah you like, definitely definitely just, don't want that just take the time so yeah i mean that's something that is something i mean i mean that's something you need to consider is that if you're if you're thinking about these snakes um as potential ownership, you should consider them as a uh, false water cobra, in my opinion, mm -hmm. on the yeah. same level. So, and and that's not to say that you know legislation needs to step up and regulate no, these. More. We don't need legislation to police us. No, we can no, no, do no, it ourselves. But yeah, you should, it, it, this isn't something that I think. Uh, I mean, again, like you said, with lax with rear fangs of boyega, and even as far as. Western hog noses and people are very lax with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think you don't want to fall into the trap of being lax with them like you would a Western hog nose because they're not. So yeah. 
Yeah, and yeah. who knows? You could be that one person that has the worst right. anaphylaxic reaction to that and drops dead in 10 minutes. Exactly. So, And you don't want that. So just yeah. take the time. You know? Yeah. Use and that, and yeah, use a hook. Practice safekeeping. Treat it like something that you're comfortable tailing. They're not very aggressive per se, but they can be wily and defensive, especially because they are pretty much all wild-caught imports unless you happen to get you know, a captive hatched or a captive born and bred because it has happened in small numbers, but even they can be a little bit grouchy and, and give you a run for your money. So mm-hmm. it's just something to be mindful of, um, you know, never take, never take extra liberties because you really just don't know how you're going to react. And to, to just really hit this point home, the smaller of the three Madagascar hognose species, the speckled Leoheterodon gayi, yeah. they have a potent enough venom to, to knock down and kill a mouse in 20 minutes. And, you know, to, to really add extra perspective to that, that's about as fast as things like beak snakes or boiga that we do consider as having, you know, potentially decent venom in some regards. So we really, we really do need to, as a hobby, reevaluate um, that aspect. And uh, as, inv- you know, responsible animal keepers and people trying to push the the hobby forward. Owen and I are in discussion about this already. And I, you know, we have both uh, admitted to being lax and in, in handling them wrong oh, yeah. and, and really reevaluating I mean, this perspective. And so, yeah, we're now both. Let's, let's start talk about that. I mean, I, I paired my gay eye um, earlier this year and I would just open up their drawer and I'd pull them out and, handle them and check them out and hold them and move them around. They're actually the calmest of all my Madagascar hogs mm-hmm. is my gay eye. So mm-hmm. it's like, now you're like, dude, they can drop a mouse in 20 minutes. It's like, never mind. Well, yeah. no, I'm, sure legit. Be, I'm sure they'll be fantastic on hooks, but like, yeah, no, it's yeah. They're great in hand. I'm sure they'll be fantastic on hooks, but it's yeah. something you got to do. Like you said you, I became lax and that's stupid. So well, right. and I, I used to even use one for educational purposes mm-hmm. back in the zoos because she's the most placid animal ever. And it was always kind of an interesting gray area because we treated our false water cobra as truly hot. But this animal was a handleable education animal. Now, we did have her as more of an advance just because she was old and had had surgery and egg egg binding and all these things. But realistically, like we should have probably taken better precautions with that animal. Fortunately, yeah. nothing happened. But, you know, on the Internet today, I can't tell you how many times I've seen significant envenomations from a little Western hognose biting somebody on the finger. And those are every kid's little favorite pet snake right now because yeah. they're cute and adorable little noses. So just food for thought. All right. So let's see. Uh, what about uh, IUCN Red List? So the IUCN red list lists these snakes as least concern. And we do hear a lot of anecdotal talk about how they're kind of all over the island. They're quite prevalent. They inhabit several different uh, biomes on, on Madagascar. So they do seem to be pretty common. You, you can go on YouTube and find uh, videos from people just finding them around the village uh, that they live in over there. So they're not, they're not really hurting. Um, the reason why we don't see a bunch of import and export of the species is not because their populations are being regulated and are are slim. It's because the government turns over, closes, opens, closes, opens quite frequently. Mm. Um, So their, their populations are good out there. They seem to be thriving on the Island overall. Yeah. I mean, Madagascar is one of those tricky things where it seems like they're doing good now, but I almost feel like these guys would be okay 
even if uh, I know a lot of species over Madagascar are in trouble due to the deforestation of the mm-hmm. population of the island, but mm-hmm. I kind of feel like these guys would be all right, even if that happened. Kind of like how blood pythons do better in palm oil plantations than anything mm-hmm. else. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they can they can feed on rodents because mm-hmm. of their size. They can take large uh, mammal prey that tend to be attracted by human trash, uh, birds and things like that. So as far as the alteration, as long as the climate doesn't change dramatically there, they should be able to uh, unfortunately handle the human destruction that seems to be ongoing better than a lot of the other species. Right. Okay. So, uh, you said they're on Madagascar. Where else can they be found? So they, they've been reported to be on some of the Comoro islands as introduced individuals and seem to be doing out there. So great. Yeah. So nosy B, nosy Sakatia, nosy Kamba, some of these, these islands where we know, surround madagascar that are part of that whole group but these animals traditionally haven't been found there some of them are introduced there and then within these regions they like i said earlier they do seem to adapt to a lot of different environmental habitats from forests to to shrublands to grasslands to you know the human altered terrestrial areas they can be found coastal they can be found further inland um, so they seem to be pretty tough, hardy snakes, and, and husbandry would would agree with that. You can you can cycle them uh, very cold in the winters. There are parts of Madagascar that get down into the 40s, and they seem to handle that with ease. As long as you know, like anything else, they warm back up. So these animals seem to be very very adaptable. Okay, now uh, we're looking at a diurnal hunter. Yeah, yeah. Although I have seen video footage when I had uh, cameras in my cage of these animals you know, out and about at 8.30, well after dark. But yes, they do seem to be uh, very, very diurnal, if not edging on crepuscular. But yeah, I mean, you if you have individuals in enclosures, they'll be out and about cruising during the day, burrowing around, looking for stuff. Uh, and they're often witnessed during the day in villages over there too. So uh, all evidence points to a very diurnal lifestyle. And these animals are very visually cued in. If you if you observe them or you see their eye structure, they do seem to have good vision, which would also suggest a diurnal lifestyle. Okay. Now, are they any are they t- any type of fossorial? I mean, with normally you'd think with the uh, hog nose or the shovel nose would be used for digging, um, or are they strictly terrestrial? I would say they're more terrestrial than anything. I think these animals have confidence enough to to curl up and just you know maybe if they need shelter, hide under logs, palm trees any fallen debris, things like that, hollows and stuff, but they're, they don't seem to climb very much. They seem to be very awkward when you get them off the ground. I wouldn't put it past them to pursue prey a little bit off the ground if they had to and were on the chase, but um, that nose, that shovel nose is actually more used for uh, some of their feeding habits as opposed to being uh, an underground burrower. That being said, there are also uh, research and field notes of them utilizing burrows and underground chambers for nesting. Mm-hmm. So I would almost say that they probably utilize a, a mixture of subterranean and terrestrial lifestyle. Okay. So let's just see here. Real quick. Now, I mean, we already said that they're rodent feeders. Mm-hmm. Um, now I know I've been able to get mine to eat fish. Mm-hmm. So these things are pretty much just garbage disposals at this point, right? Yeah, and one of the the regularly documented favorite foods of theirs are actually Madagascan collared lizard eggs, which is where that nose comes into play. They have a very good sense of smell, and a lot of the sandy areas where these lizards like to deposit their eggs, mm-hmm. these snakes will will 
watch. They'll sit and wait for female collards to, to drop their eggs and they'll go dig them up and eat them up right away. So there are folks who have had, uh, you know, bearded dragon eggs be consumed or other lizard eggs that were infertile offered to their hogs and they will occasionally eat them. Um, it seems to be lizard so though, weird. like reptile yeah. eggs, not, not quail so much. Um, I've offered mine quail and chicks and I've gotten mixed reviews from some of them. Some of them take them just like anything else. Some do not. Um, they do seem to adapt to a, a, a rodent based diet quite regularly and easily. So, um, you, you really could, uh, feed them a lot of variety of, of food items. It seems. That's so cool. I mean, and that's something else to think about with, with Westerns. I mean, they're mostly toad feeders. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they'll just dig up a whole thing of, uh, uh, they'll either dig up a toad underground or something like that. So you think maybe long upturned or long nose or upturned nose is used somewhat for digging mm -hmm. and it has mm -hmm. to be for reptile and amphibian feeders. That's cool. Yeah. It seems to be associated with a lot of that, that behavioral characteristic. Yes. All right, so for reproductive, you've actually experienced this for yourself. I so have. go through the reproductive nodes. So these guys are oviparous, which means they, they reproduce via external eggs where the babies hatch out externally as opposed to viviparous or any of that. Um, there's not a lot of documentation out there. There are people who have done it uh, before myself, but it does seem to be kind of an elusive species to breed, probably because of the infrequent importation and just inconsistent availability of the animals. Mm -hmm. I imagine if they're available, somebody else would have figured this out a little bit further. But having housed them individually and communally, I can without a doubt say they seem to do better communally. So after a year of understanding that, you know, they seem to reproduce on their own. Um, I had my suspicions based on some behaviors, some some cold side and, and warm side thermoregulation and, and appetite variation. But they lay eggs. They can lay anywhere from like three to 20. I've seen uh, folks who've had success in France with you know, high teens. Um, so it's not impossible for large individuals to have large clutches. Uh, and they seem to follow a similar cycle to a lot of um, like our python species. They, they do seem to respond well to a winter cooling and then coming back up, getting more food and then breeding in, in the, like the late winter, early spring for okay. egg production and hatching late summer, fall sort of a deal. Gotcha. Okay, so the more of like the spring breeder bread lie kind of deal, but maybe not as deep into spring, kind of like sure. a, maybe a late coastal carpet python. Yeah, that being said, I've also seen people have clutches out of season, yeah. and that could also lend to their equatorial location in the world. So right. it, you, you very well could cycle them with food and uh, do like a, a photo period or hydration, like water season cycle, and probably breed them at any time of the year if you've got some individuals established and settled into that routine and breed them out of a normal season. But uh, hasn't been necessarily proven per se, but the fact that I see folks getting clutches at various times of the year when they Something's do happen, happening, yeah, they're doing something, something is correct. Happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So they're cool. <laughs> very cool. Um, yeah. How, how long are we looking at as far as like age? And that's kind of hard to, to even ask when it comes to snakes. Yeah. Like, Especially when they're imported, you don't know how old they are. Well, and that's the other thing is that we can sit here and we can say that, you know, uh, it, it snakes can live to be 15 or 20. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the average age of a carpet python should be somewhere in the thirties. 
Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you, if we were to average out the lifespan of carpet pythons in U.S. herpetoculture, we get nowhere near thirty. But right. um, so I would say that you're like, how long are we looking at as far as uh, you know lifespan that we know of? Well, uh, you know, I can I can roughly estimate that the oldest individual I have in my collection is at least ten years old, just by the fact that he came in at a certain size, mm. has not grown since, and has some pretty old scars to him. And then having worked with uh, an individual in Santa Barbara at the zoo years ago that was, you know, wild caught in some part of California as a released pet and had lived at the zoo for like 10 years prior to me working there and then another six years with me and she's still there. I think we we should realistically be able to get these animals to live past 30, if not into 40. Is that um, is that that's further? I mean, so corn snakes and king snakes, that's like, what, 15, 20? Yeah, and then there's the ex- exceptions that make it plus twenty, but right. Yeah. But that's so that's definitely. I mean, Kribo and Beauty Snake and some of the larger, larger colubrid species we're looking at getting close to thirty years, correct? Yeah. So I, uh, like you said earlier, we really don't know concretely, but I, I suspect these animals can live quite some time more than we we give them credit for. I'd say we at least get closer to larger colubrid species than we would for like smaller colubrid species. Definitely. Yeah, I think I think if you have a, a mad hog, captive born or, or imported young, you should definitely expect that thing to live 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. So now you did kind of mention defensive behavior and I do love their defensive behavior. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, yes. Um, these things obviously uh, they'll hood, but not like a cobra. It, it's very much like what we said earlier, a false water. Mm-hmm. Or, or even almost like a mamba, how like having the mamba mm-hmm. those longer uh, longer hoods, mm-hmm. um, and they're definitely very um, uh, a very vocal and mouthy species. Yes, so, yeah, they they will audibly hiss at you. They'll nice. open mouth, kind of crack the side of their mouth, and like you know, like kind of let you know. And they will do uh, almost a periscope hood like a cobra, but like mm-hmm. you said, they tend to do it more like a falsy, where it's not as vertical, and they they rotate it sideways. Um, they, they give you that size perspective by turning their hood at an angle so you can see it. So instead of going up and facing you, they go perpendicular and sideways yeah. so you can I, see that hood. I've, I've almost seen them. It's almost like they use it as like a shield. Like they don't expose their belly to you like a cobra would. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. expose you to the back end of the hood and then they kind of just try to flare it out so that you see the snake coiled and that you see this thing almost like it's it's looking at you over its shoulder when it's hooded. Yeah. And they will, they will weird. absolutely bluff strike or even like pull their hood back and slap their tail in front to kind of give you this twitchy motion that puts their head furthest away from you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very quick and twitchy snakes when they're fired up and in, in, in a defensive mental state like that. And it can be really intimidating because they're so quick. They can go from a defensive hood in the back of the enclosure to chasing your hand out really quick, even though the mouth is closed and it's a bluff mm-hmm. strike. More often than not, I've I've experienced both open and closed mouth, but they will they will get you, and they're surprisingly fast. Yeah, and I also like have noticed that they do just like to periscope up and look at things a lot. So they're very mm-hmm. they do kind of almost move with their head up higher than yes. I think some of the other species that I've seen. Yeah, if you keep them in an enclosure at head height or above, you will see that behavior almost daily. Like mm-hmm. as we are recording this, I'm being creeped on and stared down by at least one of my females staring down. At yeah, that. I, it's I pretty just, cool. I just moved mine to about a head high uh, or head level 
uh, four foot enclosure, my two, they're being communally housed now. Uh, I've kind of trying to breed them, but I'm also not really trying very hard, but uh, I'll see them slither around with like the first, maybe one third of their body kind of up as mm-hmm. they kind of move around just to check and see everything that's moving on around them. Yeah. They love watching everything that's going on. So, all right. Now, uh, any unique behaviors or traits? So other than everything we've talked about, there have been research uh, endeavors out there that find females exhibiting maternal egg um, nesting behavior and even sharing nests with multiple females. And studies have shown, because they've even put GPS trackers in females, that they, they leave the eggs at times and come back. And it's been suggested maybe because other individuals on the island could be, you know, potentially capable of eating their eggs that they tend to protect them a little bit more. But then I've also seen that multiple females will share a den. And if that's the case, you know, they're not necessarily going after one another's eggs, but it's probably a concern and a possibility, but it's interesting to see that they show some um, maternal care, at least for the eggs to make sure that they go on instead of just drop them and let them go. But say, well, find me another colubrid species that does. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very unique in reptiles. It's it's I mean, not I would common. understand I would understand multiple females sharing a den because if you find a really good spot, I would like I said, if I found a really good spot and I found a clutch of corn snake eggs, I would not be surprised if I found another clutch of corn snake eggs in that same relative spot because that was a good spot one female found and dropped her eggs and mm-hmm. why wouldn't another maybe another female find it drop her eggs right next door. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely that makes sense to me but have the females then stick around like no no they leave like they drop yeah. eggs and they're gone yeah. so it's pretty interesting i mean if you think about all the the animals and and wildlife that's on madagascar there aren't any really big predators out there so those those giant mad hogs kind of only have to worry about other giant mad hogs really mm-hmm. so, or wants to throw it or something i mean mm-hmm. like yeah, it's just true but it, you're you're exactly correct there's not really too many crazy things but you know i, I mean it's that it, that's just very very cool so that's yeah. awesome yeah they're a great snake and obviously these things are in the hobby because you and i both have them yep, so, yep. as we've been talking they're in the hobby um but yeah not not in large quantities right so the majority like i i know you have one captain born and bred baby that you produced mm-hmm. but the rest of yours are um, wild caught imports correct um, my two are captive hatched babies mm-hmm. their mother was brought in and dropped the clutch oh um, nice yeah and that's where i got them uh but then like my blondes are all wild caught mm-hmm. um and then so are my speckles mm-hmm. uh, i'm sorry no my one blonde male is captive born and bred in the united states mm. as well so they are happening where people are getting lucky of that they bring them in and they lay eggs here but then also people are getting lucky where they bring them in and they leave them together and then all of a sudden the female lays eggs so yeah uh, they are being reproduced. Uh, it's just the shame of it is that if they aren't reproduced readily and Madagascar closed the, the border down again, then all of a sudden now we don't have any more. Right. So. It's an interesting position for the species. And, and it's also interesting in the fact that uh, the wild exportation, it, I would, I would consider it encouraged at this time in order to establish uh, these populations a little bit further and eventually we won't need to pull from Madagascar, but given that they're a least concerned status animal, I think continued exportation to help solidify their position in the hobby in order to make sure that we have sort of assurance colonies, so to speak, is good because it's not going to, according to assessments, uh, 
damage or in another way hinder the survival of their wild populations. Okay. So what are we looking at as far as general care and husbandry? Yeah. So we'll wrap it up with how, how we keep them. And, and given, given a lot of, uh, similar species along equatorial lateral lines as these animals like to be cared for. That was kind of my starting point in how I, how I based my jumping off start for husbandry. And there's some other people who have published how they do it. But for me, I, I keep them very similar to uh, a Python and, and something that needs high humidity where I give them a, a warm spot around 88 to 90 and, and that's because there are parts and times of during the day on the island where they get very, very warm there. Don't forget Madagascar is off the coast of Africa, so it can get pretty hot. It's equatorial, but there's also a lot of humidity. And then there's also a lot of fluctuation in temperature dropping down into cool evenings, winters where um, it's very cold and not as rainy, but they do get a lot of precipitation. So for me, my approach is give them a hot end that can go 88 to 90 let that thermal gradient go as cold as it does based on ambient, give them a slight night drop because it can stay warm. You don't want to just mm. chill them out all year and then keep that humidity up either with, you know, a big water bowl, a humid hide, uh, some humid retaining bedding or moss, things like that. Spray them down. I think they do really well with that style of keeping. And I've had no health ailments doing anything like this. In fact, they really do love that humidity. They do love swimming in their, their large bowl from time to time to cool off or just because they're very active during the day. So if you keep them like a python with uh, a good thermal gradient, high humidity, and and bedding to muck around in and, and the ability to swim or get humid and dry as they need, you will you will see these animals thrive. Cool. All right. So that does it for this episode of Collierbird Corner. Riley, what are we talking about next time? So next episode is going to focus on kind of the opposite spectrum here. We're going to go from something that is common, well, semi-common, mm -hmm. to something that has probably not been heard of by many people in the pearl-banded rat snake. Yes. Yeah. All right. So this that's that'll be cool, um, and we'll check those out. Uh, thank you for all for listening, and just let everybody know that uh, Collierbird Corner is a proud member of the Morelia Python Radio Network, complete with carpets and coffee, carpet cliff notes, Morelia Python Radio. Uh, wait, Stupid Serpent. Okay. Um, what's uh, um, crap. Humans of Herpeticulture. Yeah, humans of Herpeticulture. Christ. <laughs> so many more coming. Five and then possible four more shows coming. Uh, please go over and check out the uh, Merle Python Radio Network on YouTube. Check out the Patreon and check out the Teespring store where we promise pretty soon we're going to try to get some Collierbird Corner merchandise on there. Might even be just the Collierbird Corner logo and then a list of all the Collierbirds we've talked about going down the back of the shirt is what I'm thinking. Um, so we'll try to figure something out with that. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll catch everybody back uh, next time. And uh, that's it. Riley, say goodbye to the people. Goodbye to the people. Good job. <laughs>